Hello, and welcome to The Modern Consultant. I'm your host, Mark Aarons, and on today's episode, I have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Sean Erickson. Sean and I have been longtime friends. We actually met dancing tango, of all things. Uh, but once we got to know each other better, we started to talk about uh, behavioral economics and, and all of things, energy, climate. And in today's episode, we're going to be focusing more on the behavioral economics side of things, uh, because... If you want to communicate the value of what you do, economics can naturally help because economics is really about decision-making, the psychology of decision-making, and particularly understanding the utility of things and how that then influences how we then make decisions. And so we talk a lot about in this episode about sunk cost fallacy. We also talk about how to position yourself and also how to think about game theory and how that might actually influence the way that you do your consulting practice and much, much more. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. Sean, I just want to say welcome to the show. I have been looking forward to having you. And for those who have no idea about your background, how would you describe uh, what your research, what your specialties are, uh, just to get this started? Yeah. Thanks so much for, for having me. Of course. I'm really, really excited to, to be here. Um, yeah, we were talking about earlier. I really enjoy and appreciate the work you do. So this is yeah, a real pleasure. Thank you. Um, so I guess there's, I would say that there's kind of two parts. One, my, my work and research background, and then the totally other part of my life is how we know each other. Um, so for my work, I'm an economist. I got my PhD in economics. I work in the industry um, or in the energy industry focused on um, decarbonization climate change. So my work with uh, electric utilities, with researchers to kind of model what are the best ways to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions, get us kind of away from carbon pollution and onto kind of a greener path in a way that's also manageable and affordable. Um, and then how we know each other is actually, we met through dancing. Yes. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> both tango dancers, it's a, it's a really important part of my life. My wife, Jackie and I, we teach, we perform together. We're super lucky that um, we actually get to teach the, the Princeton Tango Club. So we help kind of run and guide mostly PhD students, some postdocs, some undergraduate, and some faculty members kind of on that that journey of connecting with each other and kind of finding their passion. So yeah, that it's very much a, a split personality of my, my <laughs> totally other other Tango and economics, they go together. Except they go, they go they do. <laughs> so actually, because I want to talk to you about human behavior, because it's impossible to study and understand economics without understanding human behavior. And just 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 give us a brief intro uh, to that uh, for those who might not be familiar with the field. Yeah, so I would say that there's kind of four really big questions in economics. 
you know, like if you're kind of starting from the philosophy of economics, we're asking, what should you do as an individual? What do you do? And then we look at groups and say, what should a group do? And what do they do? And so a group could be a company, right? Which is a collection of people. A group could be some sort of market where people are trading, could be how countries interact, right? And so that's these four parts. What should an individual do? What does an individual do? What should a group do? And what does a group do? And then we start to build up frameworks and, you know, a lot of math, a lot of assumptions, a lot of looking at, you know, optimization versus human behavior to try to start answering those questions. Um, and, you know, kind of, classic economics is a lot of what should you do? It's like, what is the optimal choice in different situations? Mm. If you want to make the best choice, what are the tools to do that? When human, yeah. I was going to ask, like, so to that end, is that implying, is the what should one do imply maximization of utility? That would be one framework to to do it, yes. Okay. Um, now, what's kind of interesting is we use this term utility really loosely in economics, but it's in some sense utility is whatever your whatever makes you better off. And so, what we're saying is you should do whatever makes you most better off is the thing that'll make you bet mm. better off. So, you know, in some sense, it, it's. Uh, it's a fact that has to always be true. Okay. You know, if whatever has your highest utility, that's always the best thing to do. Mm. The deeper question is, how should you think about what your own utility is? Okay. Right. Sometimes, you know, there, there's, um, I think the biggest mistake that we even make as economists, but definitely when people are thinking about it, is they think utility is money. You know, if you have more money, you have more utility but very much not the case, right? You can think of, there's so many other factors that influence how happy we are, what our feeling of success is, you know, all those other things, that can all be your utility. It has nothing to do with money. Mm. Um, you know, there's this, uh, there's this uh, quote that's, you know, that I, I might get it wrong, but it's like, the, the lay person, thinks about how much money they can get, but the wise person thinks of what that money can do for them. Mm -hmm. Maybe miss, miss the exact quote, but that's the, yeah. the essence is you know, what you're really caring about is what's going to make you better off. And then there are some tools that are pretty powerful for helping you. Get there. Mm -hmm. and so that's part, that's a big part of it. I really like that and to thread this needle for those listening in that might not have a background in, you know, uh, STEM uh, and are coming at it from the perspective of marketers or digital marketers. Uh, when we're talking about utility here, uh, marketers tend to refer to this as value and value being uh, subjective. And so value to customers, value to clients and so on and so forth. Uh, and of course, it's subjective and value in a business context, like you alluded to earlier, many people think about it, it's just money, but there's way many 
way more dimensions and types of value uh, than just money. Uh, and so I'm, I'm fascinated by this, like just personally, because I've had all of my bro science uh, theories about it, because uh, I'm, uh, disclaimer, not an economist. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, I'm looking forward to diving into this uh, more with you. When So you said there's four big questions that uh, economists are trying to answer. Uh, what are some of the differences? Well, actually, just to give further context for those who are listening in, the better we understand human behavior from an uh, economics perspective is the better we're going to be able to communicate with people, to message about value to people who have an interest in the value of our products, services, brands, and so on and so forth. And so everything inside of this conversation is going to be extremely uh, helpful. That's I just wanted to give that uh, context there for anyone that's listening in. And so diving back into it, what and why are there differences between those questions that are applied to individuals versus groups? Yes. So, yeah, first we can take the individual part, right? What should you do versus what? The ideal is when both of those are the same. You know, if you choose what's best for you and, you know, you kind of make the best decisions, we tend to think you're going to be better off than what. Um, and in some choices, you can get pretty close to that. But there's all of these potential biases that we have. So this is the whole field of behavioral economics mm. that's really you know, changed how a lot of economists think about the world is saying that those two aren't the same, right? We often don't do maybe what's the best yeah. way to be trans. I don't know. Here, here's a, a, you know, a straightforward but kind of powerful example. Um, one of the, the fundamental things of making best choices, which is called, um, there, there's this idea of sunk costs, which is you should make choices based on what you can control going forward, not what happened in the past. Mm. So, you know, if you spend a lot of money on something that ends up not being very valuable to you, you shouldn't keep spending money on that thing because you spent a lot of money on it, right? What happens in the past, you can't affect that. You should consider what you can do going forward. Um, whereas we consider what happens in the past all the time. If you're, if you're, talking to anybody at a casino, right? They're talking about their winnings and losings. Mm. That's based on how much money they put on the table in the past. That shouldn't matter. You know, if you're, if you're investing in stocks, right? It doesn't really matter how much your stock is up or down. That money that you invested is sunk cost. What you should only be caring about is, is your position good for the future? Mm. But that feels very foreign to me, yeah. right? If you're thinking about what are my gains and losses, that's comparing something that's already been sunk, that's already invested, that's in the past, that doesn't impact your optimal choice. Hmm. Yeah. Do economists generally consider evolutionary biology 
and how that impacts uh, decision making. Yes. So the you know the the behavioral economists draw a lot from psychology, which does have that you know why we think the way we do is because of how we've evolved to you know process the world around us. Um, and yeah, I think that there's there's certain you know so there's there's a very famous book called Thinking Fast and Slow. Mm, it's on uh, my shelf. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Right. So that that's um, gets at it, it's kind of one of the cornerstones of the behavioral economics literature. There, there's a lot more from there, but you know the fundamental idea here is that we we don't you know we're limited in our capacity to make decisions. We're not we don't have a computer in our head that's going to process everything in the world and give us. So we're, we're basing it on, you know, what we know about the world, our best guesses. And sometimes those ideas lead us into not the best choice. But on the, the plus side, if we study how we think we might make not great choices and we're aware of those, then we can probably start to make better choices. You know, if you know... I have a tendency to make this bad choice. I might make better choices. Um, you know, an example is this effect called anchoring, where if somebody puts out a number, then oftentimes you're going to base your choice around that number. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whereas that number could be totally arbitrary, right? But now we're anchored. Yeah. If you have that awareness, you might step back, take a breath, and go, that number doesn't matter. What what is the really relevant information? Hmm. Marketers and salespeople quite often use that with uh, price anchoring. Price anchoring, yeah, yeah. That's so. That's on the uh, considering evolutionary biology, how it factors into um, behavioral economics at the individual level. What about group? Yes. So. At the group level, the the fundamental idea that we use is that groups are individuals making decisions. And so you need to account for how other people are making decisions um, in, in the group. And a group could even be two people, right? Um, but a group could be a large number of people. Um, the an example of where individual decisions and group decisions might not be aligned really hits at the heart of the research that I do related to climate change, where as a group, we're putting a lot of emissions that are going to, you know, they are, they had, they will continue to warm the planet. And it has effects that are detrimental to all of the individuals of that group. So as a collective, we really want to take steps to reduce the amount of emissions we put out. As an individual, some of those steps might be costly. And if we take a bunch of costs, we're helping other people in the group, but we're bearing all of the costs. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes what happens is that individuals like, wow, that's really expensive for me to take these steps. But the 
benefits of them are often externalized onto the crew. And if there's too much where the costs are borne on you and the benefits are borne on other people, then you might not make the decision that helps everybody else out because it's too costly to you. But if we could kind of balance that out, give you more of the benefits, then you might make the choice that's better off for the group. This comes up all the time where you know, basically the idea is you have the individual, you know, what their costs are, how much value they get. And then you have the collective, hmm. what their costs are, what their benefits are. And those aren't always aligned. Is this getting into game theory? This is very much in, in game theory. Mm. Game theory is that idea. Um, game theory also has the part of your actions can influence, or like your actions, you base them in part on what other people's choices are. Mm. Um, okay, so I, I need something that I learned probably. Uh, I learned in dating, but you know, I wish I had known this earlier. But once I once I put it in, the I'm like where this is going. Let's go. Is <laughs> how I was responding to my partners was influencing how they would come and talk to me. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's this idea of, you know, you always want your partner to be honest to you. You always want them to share what they're feeling. But, you know, if, if they would come and say like, oh, I'm upset about this. And I'm like, you shouldn't be upset about that, you know, and kind of shut them down. The next time they're upset about something, they're just going to hold it in. But you know when you pay for that later. Yeah. <laughs> Punishment <laughs> and reward. Exactly. <laughs> You know, their future actions were based on the response that I gave. Mm -hmm. And so it takes a little while to learn that. But once you learn that, you're like, oh, I want to respond in a way that in the future, they're going to act. They're going to feel comfortable sharing. They're going to feel comfortable bringing up problems. They're going to feel like, okay, you know, if I talk to Sean about something, we can work on this. He's not going to shut me down. We're going to solve this together, right? If you do that, your partner is going to be much more likely to feel like, oh yeah, I'm going to bring this up. Whereas if you shut somebody down, you're, you're like, you know, block them. You make them feel bad for bringing that up. Next time, what are they going to do? What's what's in their best interest is not to feel that way again. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to change their actions. Uh, I think, you know, so often we think uh, just why is somebody acting a way they are, but how we respond to them is going to influence how they act towards us. I love this because it has implications, uh, of course, in business for customer and client feedback. It also has implications, uh, as you and I both know, uh, to 1000% uh, in tango as well when you're trying to yeah. <laughs> get better at this dance uh, together. Uh, and then, of course, uh, it, it it has just far-reaching implications uh, in you know relationships uh, as well. Yeah, it's, I would say. No, that, go ahead, please. Maybe just to put the you know, so I my my um, 
PhD was a lot of economic theory. So, you know, we had to try to get as broad and abstract as possible. And I would say that the theory takeaway I got was you want to act in a way such that how you wished people would act towards you is in their best interest to act towards you. Mm. So if you, if when somebody shares something with you, you make that a negative experience for them, they're not going to share with you going forward. If you make that, yes, that's a positive experience for them. They're going to, they're going to keep doing it. So I would say it's, Think about what, how do you really want people to act towards you? And then make sure that you are acting in a way such that that's, that's a good choice for them. You don't want what somebody else to be best for you to be bad for them. I literally just plugged this into ChatGPT to see if I could. Uh, <laughs> is this the platinum rule? And so I plugged it in and it's like, you know, the platinum rule is a twist on the golden rule where instead of treating others the way that you would like to be treated, you treat others the way that they would want to be treated. Is that in this realm? I think so. Yeah. That, but that would require empathy. <laughs> 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 just uh anyone who's listening in um yes uh we we advocate for empathy in all the places and all the things <laughs> but it is interesting um something that i think that there's there's this like pretend barrier between you know business and social mm. and it's like business is all about the numbers and social you have it. and I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm realizing that I think that's that seems like almost the the part that you have to break down it listening to the, some of the, the shows you've put out it seems like that's what you're getting navigating um, and I will say that I feel like friendships, connection, that's very much about not much. Mm -hmm. You know, you're, it's like, that's all about empathy, connecting, just being with people as people. And there's this weird thing too, is that by far the most valuable things we ever have are the people who are close to us, who can support us. Yeah. I wholeheartedly agree and appreciate that reflection. One, when I was trying to develop my own personal and professional philosophy when it came towards these things, I would actually, instead of trying to write it out, I would draw it. And I created this chart and I plotted two lines. And if you were to visualize, you know, okay, x-axis, y-axis, you got this, you know, chart, it's going up and to the right. And one line, I named it V. TB, value to business. And that's typically what a lot of people are focused on. And value, of course, it could be revenue, it could be profit, it could be, you know, whatever currency uh, that people are wanting to measure. And then I plotted another line VTC, value to clients or customers. And the big theory that I had was oh, a lot of these businesses that ultimately fail is because the value to the business 
outpaces the value to clients or customers. But then businesses also feel if value to clients and customers far outpaces the value to the business as well. And there's this need for there to be a bit of a balance between the two. Uh, and a lot of the conversations that I have with clients is ultimately about bringing balance to the force uh, and <laughs> trying to, even when we're creating marketing campaigns, sales campaigns and all the things, even just over the last couple of weeks, there have been campaigns that I've designed where I said, actually, let's sell less. Actually here, let's do an anti-sales approach because we're, 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 we're moving too much into value to business like mm -hmm. direction and we actually need to shift the balance back to the people that we are talking to. And ultimately what I find when we do that is, uh, we build trust. And one thing that has been coming up in client conversations and potential client conversations, I've said it for years and then I just found out that, well, um, apparently someone's written an entire book on it, but basically, uh, business and relationships move at the speed of trust. Then I found out that Stephen Covey like wrote a book called Speed of Trust and it was just like, oh, darn, well, I guess I can't trademark that now, but <laughs> I'm glad that there's someone out there that's advocating for uh, values that um, I hold near and dear. Does trust, one marketing theory is that there's two reasons why people don't buy. And I'd love to see what the realm of behavioral economics might have to say about this. And so the two reasons are there's either a lack of trust in the person that they're buying from or the brand, the solution, or whatever the case may be, um, or there's a lack of trust in self. Does that fit into the realm of behavioral economics anywhere, or are there additional factors that we might consider? Yeah, I think the, the first one actually reminds me more of a framework in game theory, mm. which is when you're, when you're going to go and collaborate in a partnership, you have to, there's a lot of resources you have to expend the, the time your energy, oftentimes a lot of money to start up a collaboration, right? You're putting that ahead of the, the returns that come down the line. Um, and when that happens, there is, there's a very much opportunity for the person that you are working with to, uh, it either try to renegotiate the deal, try to change the terms of the agreement to get a bigger portion of that coming down the line. The idea is you've already put a bunch of resources towards it, thinking you're going to get some amount. And then afterwards they can change and say, no, I, I want more. Right. And so there, there's a, a risk there in collaborating with other people. And I think that the, in some sense, trust comes in to help smooth that out. You know, if you have a lot of trust that the other person is going to have your best interest or even that, you know, the value of them having a good reputation 
is such that they are not going to do something to financially hurt your business. Yeah. You know, that is really important because there there is this barrier to making choices. Um, you know, or there there's this uh, idea of, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna buy a, a used car, um, there's this theory of the like the the car the cars that are limits right the cars that aren't very good and some cars are going to be good cars some cars are going to be total limits now if you're thinking of that you're like i don't know which one i'm going to buy so i gotta i'm going to pay less than for the really good car because i might get a limit so if you have the good car you're now getting less than your value so you leave the market and so that means you're only less left with the limits out but then as a buyer, you're like, the only used cars out there are limits, so I'm not going to buy any of them, right? And it kind of, it can push down where the things that you could buy are not very valuable. Yeah. And the the solution to things like that is often trust. If you can trust the person who's selling to you to be honest broker, to you know give you the proper information, to do what's in your best interest, then there's a lot more ways that you can make value for both people. So I think that trust very much fits in there. Um, the other part that you were talking about, the, the valuing yourself, I think that's very much in the psychology mm. and behavioral economics realm. I think that's, that's huge. I, I, I don't know the, the answer to that, you know, I think, <laughs> probably have a lot more insights to, to give. I yeah, there's there's much that can be said about it, but in my experience of having coached people now for, you know, 10 years in a variety of contexts is in layman's terms, if there is a deeply held belief or worldview that somebody has that they are undeserving of something or that they are an undeserving person writ large and so not deserving of anything beneficial, then we tend to perform, we have automatic negative thoughts as well as uh, actions that we carry out that are that serve to reinforce that underlying belief. And this now gets into the realm of psychology of self-sabotaging behavior, you know, and we confirmation bias, all the things uh, to basically reinforce this underlying belief. Uh, and so then we make decisions that, um, for example, confirm to us that, oh, we are undeserving of having a lot of money, for example, is a common one in the world of entrepreneurship. Uh, and it's very hidden uh, because if someone just in this hypothetical scenario were to um, a client said, oh, you know, I think actually you're undercharging. They're like, no, 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 it's fine. You know, and they just like brush it away. Uh, and instead of accepting the money <laughs> you know, or feeling very uncomfortable, if uh, uh, a large financial opportunity is there, um, then that starts to uh, come up and the there's just a lot particularly around like the um hmm? oh i was just having having a quick internet connect 
to the beach. Oh, well, thank you. All right. I'm glad you're still here, you know, but no. So like that's, that's essentially it. Uh, diving into what, what would you say is one thing that has surprised you about human behavior as you have studied it as well as practice, uh, economical theory? Mm. Um, so I think that there's one thing that I, I know in myself and I see a lot of other people is it can be very hard to even tackle the idea of money and transactions, um, particularly when we're dealing with other people, right? Because I think that our interactions are very much not transactional, but in a business setting, they, they kind of need to have a transaction that occurs. Um, I feel that a lot in myself. I think exactly what you were talking about, this, this feeling of, you know, how much am I deserving? Is, am I deserving that amount? I think that that's really hard to, um, really get, get a grapple on. Um, but I think it, it's very important for any sort of successful business, right? Cause you need to, like you were saying, provide value for other businesses, provide values to your customers and clients, but that value can't come free. You know, you're, you're putting a lot of time, you're putting yourself into this. And so that understanding of how to, how to navigate what's a what's something that's going to make us all better off and that that all better off is not giveaway for free. And so an exchange of value now is, I think an exchange of value is, is very hard for people to rationalize, to get over that barrier of communicating that. There's one underlying premise within what you shared, like maybe 30 seconds ago that I wanted to just underline and maybe dig into just a little bit it was transactions versus relational uh being relational and it relations i've heard this uh quote um and love is unconditional relationships are not relationships have conditions if you know common in a monogamous relationship you cheat on your spouse, condition broke it, it is, a, it is done. That is a condition. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in much in a business context, uh, the conditions, the terms and conditions of the contract, if they are breached, the, the, the contract is now null and void. Uh, and so now that business relationship uh, typically comes to an end, you know. And I wonder and maybe you could tell me if this uh, exists in the case of uh, behavioral economics or not uh if for us to have healthy relationships if transactions are required so it's a it's a good question i think i'll just give the the thing that initially jumped to my mind and um, hopefully that's valuable is one thing about relationships is that they can have the the term we could use in economics are positive externality 
experience mm -hmm. of by having relationships, you might get some benefit that is outside of the transaction of that relationship. So to put a concrete example, um, uh, a little over a year ago, I was at a point with my previous work where I had asked for a promotion. I had gotten my PhD. I was, you know, fairly underpaid relative to the, the skill set I had. So we, I was going through that process. My employer took a very long time and then ended up coming with a 5% pay increase, which given the mm -hmm. inflation, under inflation. So I'm finally at the point of, okay, I need to, I need to start working elsewhere. So I finally get over that, that barrier, which I found surprisingly hard to just commit myself. Okay. I'm going to create a LinkedIn profile. I'm going to start applying for jobs. Right. Like that's a pretty, it's a emotionally high barrier, even if it's not a actually high barrier for, you know, time commitment. When I made my LinkedIn profile, I had a, a friend from graduate school. We friended each other. We started chatting and he was like, well, you know, I'm, I work in the same industry, the place I have, I like, I applied there, had an internal reference, got a 25% pay increase within a year. They promoted me once. So, you know, that's a substantial life nice. change getting more than, you know, increasing more than 30% in less than a year. Like that might be the most influential one hour conversation I've ever had. Maybe on this podcast. You know, <laughs> of course. That's going to be, you know, that was a hugely influential thing to happen in my life. Um, it was because of the relationship I had. Now, my friend is not going to get a large cut of my earnings, right? That That's a transaction between the company and me of how much they pay. Hmm. Um, I do think he gets like a, a, you know, a bonus for a successful referral, but that's not nearly the difference in lifetime earnings that I now get from that process. So that's a, a friendship that provided something hugely influential mm. into my life. But the transaction there is not between the friendship. It's external to the friendship. But was facilitated because of oh, interesting. Oh, that's oh, we're gonna have to do a part two because that gets into a whole world of um, how to conduct small business uh, in a way where you're paying it forward and you're always depositing into like relationships. And uh, are you familiar with uh, Adam Grant's give and take? I'm not. Oh, gosh. Okay. All right. So. Chat GPT to the rescue. Adam Grant, give and take. What is it? Uh, let's see what Chat GPT. So, give and take, revolutionary approach to success. This book by Adam Grant, organizational psychologist and professor at Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, published in 2013. Uh, yada, yada, yada. There's three kinds of people in the world givers, takers, matchers. The givers tend to be the most successful in the long term if they are able to adapt um, uh, to people, you know, who take <laughs> from them, essentially. Uh, and then uh, matchers um, focus on fairness and balance. And uh, But it, it's essentially um, advocating uh, for 
how to give in a way that also does not allow one to be uh, taken advantage of uh, and ultimately provide more value um, to others and the world, knowing that basically it's going to come back, um, both in the short term as well as long term. So kind of going back to our, you know, this economic idea of the, the four parts, you know, what sh should you do? What do you do? And then groups, what should they do? What do they do? There's this idea, everybody in the group is giving, supporting each other, right? That's kind of the best. Now, if you do have enough people who are free riding off of that, then their best interest might be to take, but not to give into the group. And then what can happen is what, what does the group do is not give. So that's where, mm. you know, if you can set it up, what would be best for the group, which ends up being best for everybody is if everybody's giving, but maybe there's some people who are, you know, their personally best thing to do is to just take and not give. Mm. And so as a group, you need to start figuring out how can you either facilitate so that the group is primarily givers so that what what's best for the group and best for the individuals coincides or how do you protect yourself like you're saying from you know people who are kind of free riding off of the the positive parts of that group so i think that that's that would be an example of where you know maybe if you can get what's best for the group is everybody supporting everybody else that ends up being the best for each individual person, but you know, you got to protect from if somebody's receiving all this stuff and not giving back, then the group starts to, to lose that, that positive synergy. That is so applicable to small groups, large groups, uh, because, uh, in, in, in my particular field, like we're typically creating, uh, communities of learners, students, you know, and it's a shared learning experience uh, quite often where people support each other. And so all of that is very, very applicable. I want to go deeper into this with you. I know we're short on time. In the interim, where can we find out more about you and more about your work? Um, so it's a good question. Um, Honestly, the I feel like the the one that's more more public is more of the the work I do with Tango. Then you know I have I have research papers out there. If you look up Sean Erickson, you know you can find some of some of that. But I think the more of what I provide to the the community is some of the the other other side of my life, and um, maybe we can talk more about that next time and i can oh yeah that'd be fun yeah i can show you some of that oh, sean this has been a pleasure uh and i will be looking forward uh to the next one hey thanks for checking out the show if you liked it go ahead and hit the like button and also subscribe so you don't miss another one it also tells us which ones that you like the most so that we can then do more interviews like that if you want to go from idea to implementation though 
especially if you're wanting to productize your expertise so that you can scale your impact on your clients and of course grow your business, then join our email list. There we're gonna talk about how modern consultants can productize their expertise so that they can have a greater impact on the world around them and live life on their terms. If that's up your alley, I hope to see you on the other side. Talk soon.